Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. Hey, everyone. We have a really special episode of Marketing Against the Grain coming all the way from Inbound 2022. I did not get to go this year, but I had an incredible stand-in in the form of Katie Burke. Katie and Kip debated all about is PR actually worth it anymore? Should we actually invest in PR? We're going to get straight to that. So here's Marketing Against the Grain all the way live from Inbound. Hey, hey, welcome to a very special live from Inbound 22 episode of Marketing Against the Grain. Thanks for being here, everyone. Woo, thank you. I'm your co-host, Kit Bodner. I'm normally on Marketing Against the Grain, joined by the amazing Kieran Flanagan. But Kieran is in Dublin, Ireland today. We're live in Boston, Massachusetts, so I'm bringing in an amazing guest co-host, my friend, my co-worker, Katie Burke. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So we have a fun topic for everybody. We are going to cover, does PR still even matter? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm going to take the no. She's going to take the yes. We're going to have a fun-filled, spirited debate. It's going to be amazing. But before we get into this, Katie, I have a question for you and the audience. So I'm at Kit Bodner on Twitter. You're at, at Katie Burke on Twitter. And we're both fans of a certain musical artist. Her name's Taylor Swift. Who here likes Taylor Swift in the audience? All right. We got a lot of T-Swift fans. Uh, T-Swift just announced a new album called Midnight's. And it's about songs that are about late night experiences. If you are awake at midnight with some friends having fun, what is the song you are most likely to be playing at a fun midnight hour? Easiest question you've ever asked me. It's always <laughs> How Will I Know by Whitney Houston, the one and only. My first concert. She's a legend. Everyone of every generation knows it. If you don't, Sing, sing your heart out this afternoon. So that's my pick. What's yours? Okay. So I think you nailed a lot of the criteria. It needs to be a song that people know. It needs to be high energy. It needs to, it needs to be something everybody sings along to. So I would go with the earworm that was the proclaimers, I'm going to be walk 500 miles. Wow. Because it is cheesy. It is where, upbeat. Where are you hanging out at midnight that that's what like gets people Me. going? Me. Big like Scottish niche content. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like it. <laughs> Okay. I've never proclaimed to be cool in my life. If you had given life. me one million guesses, that would have been my last guess. Oh, I, I, like my whole top five were deep cuts, so that was my least deep what cut. What was of your the second? Deep... We have to know. I think everyone has. Uh, to. The band's cover, Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City, which is an awesome song. I get, okay. I'm getting some love you from have the audience. Two people who know your song, and everyone who knows how I know. Sorry, four people, and Thanks, everyone guys. who was like how I know by Whitney Houston, obviously a bop. You were just pandering to the audience. It's okay. Well, fine. You, 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 know, you know the game. That's but, what good PR is all about. That's why it matters so much. <laughs> okay. Ooh, I see where we're going there. Uh, so she just transitioned for me, everybody. So that made it really easy. So before we get into our debate, though, so for folks who don't know, Katie has spent a lot of time in her career in people operations, but also PR. You run PR at HubSpot. I would love for you to set up for everybody listening live and at home kind of how you define public relations so that we can have 
a debate that we're on the same page on and like what's your kind of core definition of PR? Sure. So I think one of the things we're going to talk about is building ownable assets. Obviously, inbound marketing is all about building ownable assets, and we both share a love for owned content. So The Hustle, all of our podcast network, all that kind of stuff, we have a shared love and belief in those as vehicles. 100%. What we're talking about today is media that you as a brand do not own and the importance of engaging with reporters and publications to engage in building your brand. That's how I think about what a PR strategy is, is non-owned publications, non-branded publications, and the importance for organizations of building relationships and building their brand using those vehicles. The cool kids out there would call that earned media. Earned, and I would also say it needs to be broader than that because I think if you do it well, you combine it with your own channels. We'll talk more about that. I have, I have one question because I think this is going to be at the heart of our debate here. Okay. Is influencer marketing part of public relations and earned media or not? Because yes. I think that is actually a big part of the discussion. Yes, it is. Absolutely. You think it is? Yes. I think it's... It is and it is. I don't, I don't know if I agree yet, but you might convince me that it is. Okay. So now that we're all aligned on PR, what matters... I want to kick off by giving my point of view of why we are here doing this podcast. There's, I've seen a bunch of data recently that has me concerned about the future of PR. And I think PR works really great in a world where media is very centralized. So if you look at a country like Japan, for example, there are like 16 business media outlets that reach everybody in that country. And in that country, wow, PR is really, really valuable. In a country like the US, for example, we have just massively decentralized our media. And I look at PR as there are, there's kind of two reasons to do it. The, the quantifiable like traffic and stuff to your website. And the other is the perception side of it. And I've got some data here that I want to share with everybody. So the trust on the publication media side is down a lot. So in 1995, 46% of Americans trusted television news. Today that's 11%. In 1995, 36% of Americans trusted newspapers, now that's 16%. It's a massive erosion of trust in a very short period of time. And so I think historically PR has done a really good job of aligning a business and brand with a trusted media outlet. Like, does that erosion of trust change how you think about PR, Katie, and like its role in all of this? No, because I think there's been a similar erosion in the trust people feel around corporate channels. Like, I think there's just a general skepticism of the disaggregated media overall, including earned and owned channels. And so I think if we were just talking about a diminished trust in the media, then I would happen to agree with you. We're talking about diminished trust and skepticism of all information intake, including social media, included branded content. So that same survey noticed that people really do not trust branded content either, especially when it comes to important like key information of our time. And so from my perspective, does it change how you should think about your PR strategy? Absolutely. So it used to be, to your point, that you could get one big Wall Street Journal or New York Times hit and it could make or break your organization for a while. I think those days are gone. And so we certainly agree that in a decentralized media, you can no longer rely on one outlet or on one publication as your strategy. But I think if anything, it makes some of the niche publications even more important. Okay. So that's interesting. But... I think one of the challenges, some of the other data that I, I found was newsroom staffs have been decreased by about 55% over the last 20 years. So you have, it's 
the topics that are getting covered and the ability to actually build a relationship with media, which is I think a huge classic function of PR, has gotten much, much harder. In that world, what's the advice you give to everybody listening here of how to actually make PR work in this like shrinking media landscape that we have today? Yeah, so I think the key to building great media relationships is much like the fundamental premise of inbound, which is that you have to help people and give more than you take. So I think the perennial mistake that most organizations make is uh, with funding announcements. Funding announcements are the perfect <laughs> thing that example. people think that the We've entire We've startups who listen, so, so you this write is great. To, I see some nodding heads. It's like, dear TechCrunch, we got a million dollars. Can you write this? By the way, I didn't ask you for an embargo. I didn't actually like handle the protocol well here. And by the way, like, can you run this perfect picture of my CEO and say this description of us, all that kind of stuff. I see some nodding heads. Everyone has pitched <laughs> this story before. It's a disaster. Reporters hate it. Outlets hate it. There's no value added. And if that's your first interaction with a reporter, you're doing it completely wrong. The much better way and the way that we did it at HubSpot, so spoiler alert, I'm going to take us back in the time back machine. In the day you're taking us back time in time a little yes. bit? I love this. Let's do so it. So when I first started at HubSpot, HubSpot had and still has an incredible blog, incredible social media channels. And when I started at HubSpot and told people I was going to work for an amazing company called HubSpot, Nobody knew what it was. They thought it was a blog, an agency. There was a lot of confusion. And if you ask 10 people on the streets of Boston what we did, there was a ton of confusion. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal. Maybe I just have not cool friends, which is fine. I can live with that. But the bigger issue is we wanted to go public. And it turns out investors care a lot about media. And it also turns out that your prospects care a fair amount. So we would have people, I'd run into people on the street and they'd say, yeah, actually, I didn't know that HubSpot sold marketing software. So I went with, I won't say our rival here, but at the time, one of our competitors. And that just felt like a huge miss. And so one of the ways in which I think PR can be incredibly valuable was we set out to really get a few hits that just said HubSpot, comma, an inbound marketing software company. And what that did was it helped prospects make sure they knew that, yes, they can come to us for helpful content, but they can also come to us because we build incredible software. And as we were going public, it was incredibly important that we got a valuation that recognized we were a SaaS company because our multiples were going to be based and rooted in that. So having investors understand that we are a software company, that we were building great software was mission critical. So I think a lot of it comes down to the audiences you care about. And I think PR can be a huge accelerant to helping you grow. And I think it was a big part of the HubSpot story that oftentimes people forget. Okay, so you're, you're really leaning into the perception upside of PR. How do you think everybody listening who wants to do PR, is currently doing PR, is a PR professional out there, how do you think they, they measure and quantify that? Because like that's, that's, that's a really hard thing to do. And I want to kind of give everybody the flip side of this. So I dug into the HubSpot website analytics, and I looked at all the referral traffic to HubSpot.com from January 1st of this year to yesterday. When do you think the first media website came in priority order of most referral traffic? Like from you know, one to 200, like where is it in that, where do you think it ranked in that cycle? I mean, my guess is knowing your argument, it's like 65th would be my guess. 142nd. Okay. 142nd, so very, so very low. But you're making an argument that that actually shouldn't matter. You're making an argument that perception is way more important. And, I'm, and I'm, what I'm trying to couch for everybody listening is I think if you're going to measure PR on just the raw kind of direct response or quantitative measures, you're probably not gonna do it. Right, And so let's make the case for everybody for the perception benefits, the awareness benefits, the harder to quantify 
benefits? Like, how do you think about showing and demonstrating that for everybody listening? So first, I agree with you that I do not think that PR is the best vehicle for traffic. So people who think they're going to sell a bunch of HubSpot software tomorrow based on one PR hit, that is a fever no dream way. regardless of what you're totally. selling and a total mistake in perception. Where I think PR can be incredibly helpful is in a few key kind of areas. One is international growth. If you're growing in new markets, inbound and building a community takes time. This is it a is great point. I totally agree with you on this. mission critical to our LATAM team, to our regional EMEA teams. There are only so many times that our sales reps can spell H-U-B-S-P-O-T. I've heard them spell it a lot on the phone. And so what PR does is it really gives them a knock on the door. It gives them a few more at-bats with critical opportunities for our customers. So we would simply put not have been able to grow in international markets the same way we would. So if you're a company that cares about international growth, PR should absolutely be part of your strategy. The second example I would have is uh, just general reputation. So HubSpot obviously cares deeply about our reputation, but so should every organization. So let's say you're an organization that's doing work with the environment, doing work in crypto, doing work in anything that could potentially have a negative story written about you. By the way, spoiler alert, that's pretty much all companies Everyone. at some point. And as a result, you have to think about positively curating your reputation because your brand and your trust are really all you have with your customers. So it's not just about media. It's also about making sure people know that you are a brand they trust. And to me, building media influence over time is a critical way to do that more than own channels. Okay. So, so it's really important in emerging markets. It's important if you're a growing startup, early stage company to set who you are in the market and get credibility from third party, uh, third party media companies, even though those media companies' credibility is declining. That's kind of my, one of my gripes with all of this. How do you, how do you know if it's working? It's a good question. So uh, a few things I would say. One other use case we haven't talked about is category creation. So creating your own category using just building your own media is a little bit challenging. It's a little bit like trying to give yourself a nickname. It just doesn't work. Have you ever had someone successfully be like, people oh, are like, oh, call me so-and-so. It doesn't work. This is totally not true. We it's true. This, we, we, we created the inbound marketing category with essentially Agreed. no PR. And when investors finally knew about it was when people started actually covering it. So how yeah, many of you know? We had a best-selling book, a blog. We yeah. have a lot of, and you needed to assets. get to critical mass, you need that accelerant to help you get there. It makes a really big difference to have other people call you what you call yourself. I'm going to have to go back and look at the Google Trends data on inbound marketing and see what it was before and after you started doing PR because Great. I'm, a little, I'm, a little, I'm slightly skeptical. Here. I'm into receipts, but <laughs> what I would say is like our IPO, like, so to answer your question, how do I think about our success? I know you're looking for perfect traffic or Google trends data. And no, I know I'm that's not. no, no, I, I, I'm love. looking for what somebody tells their CEO and, or their, their head of marketing around how they should think about investing in PR and that it's working well for them. So first never promise a publication ever, ever, never. ever. If you, if I had ever told Brian Halligan, we're going to be in the Wall Street Journal <laughs> oh, or New York Times. It would have been bad. I would, I would not be sitting here on the stage. I can tell you that much. So never promise a publication. Never promise a story that is about you. So one thing to set expectations with your CEO always on PR is that you are never the bride, always the bridesmaid. So what people want PR to be is 10 reasons Katie Burke is amazing. It is never that, and it shouldn't be. That is what your own channels are. That's what your own blog is for. That is what social media is for. What journalists do a great job of doing is talking about how your company and organization fit into a broader trend or narrative. So I think to your point, part of what you have to do with your CEO is set up the expectation, we are not the star of the show. You are not going to start by being on the Wall Street Journal. 
you are going to get some training. Part of what you have to view as success is getting people on message early. And that is not sexy. It is not cool. No one's going to give you an award for it. But the reality is, if you wait for your big at bat to have people be on message around who you are and what you do, or you put someone in a room with a top investigative journalist, they are going to do more damage to your reputation than it's worth. So starting building blocks of success are setting reasonable expectations, building that muscle of understanding how to engage with media, and then getting a few critical wins in small publications that matter. So for us at HubSpot right now, our international teams that are generating amazing coverage in regional markets, that is really important for our growth there. Those are worth celebrating. It's not about the volume of traffic they generate. It's about being intentional about smaller hits that really matter. I'm good. I have one more question for the PR folks in the audience and listening before I move to kind of the influencer marketing and, and next side of this topic, which is I know that sometimes it's just a giant pain in the butt to get a spokesperson at your business to just do what you just said, to actually care, prep, show up well for an interview that is this b bigger industry trend kind of piece. Like, how do you push them and get them there and prep them so it's, it works and it's great? So I'll answer your question, but first let me start with why it's worth it, even if you don't care about PR. So Ooh, one of this. the reasons why we care collectively so much about internal and external communications is there used to be a really strong line. You could have an internal comms team, they could get people on message for your employees, and then you could have an external PR team where they could just be on message externally. Now what you see is every single company meeting at Meta and Facebook and Google are leaked to the press. So your internal communications are your external communications. So if you were on the fence about whether or not it was worth getting people on message, it's worth getting people on message, <laughs> even if you don't love or care about a media relations strategy. Now, to answer your question on how you get people on message, the first is getting people to understand why it's important. And what I just said, I think, helps lay the groundwork of even totally. if you're not going to be in the New York Times, it matters. The other thing that I always say to people is just keep it simple. So oftentimes you'll go into a media training room and people will be like, our goal is to get Kip to just remember 12 key points, just 12, like not a big deal, it'll be fine. And oh, by the way, to fix the fact that he always says this and to have high energy and to be perfect and amazing and global first in his messaging, that's not <laughs> gonna happen. And so oftentimes what I say to people is your goal in any media training should be three key messages and one cue of a thing that they do often that is unhelpful to your brand or message. What is an example of an unhelpful cue, Katie? How can I say You've this You've probably seen a lot, I'm gonna guess. Um, Okay. I will give <laughs> She's you She's trying to anonymize them right now. Uh, so we have we have a person that we know who loves to like stick it to people. So as an example, like let's say for example, I had this like horrible ex-boyfriend and I'd be like, "Yeah, so anyways, I don't know if you heard of Joe Schmo company and they're terrible and that kind of thing and I'm sitting up here badmouthing them." You would all feel like, "Ooh, it's a little cringy. It just feels a little like Little, little Taylor Swift vibes, a little bit too much of like <laughs> totally. airing your dirty laundry. Uh, so there was someone, an executive I trained at one point who was always like trying to stick it to a competitor or to a, another exec. And I was like, this doesn't work the way that you think it's going to. Yeah. It doesn't make you sound cool. It actually just makes you sound angry. And so what I would say is like, that's a good example of a cue that's easily fixed by just telling people like, I get it. By the way, I'm on your team. That person is terrible. Obviously, I'm on your side on this one. But this is not the vehicle to air your dirty laundry. Okay, I love that. That was, good. that was great advice. And I think Katie made some great points of why you need a good, clear comms platform and messaging agnostic if you actually do PR or media relations. I want to talk a little bit, I want to go into the influencer marketing world. And I think the first part of our conversation has really been about, oh, if you're going to do PR, it has to, 
it's really about perception and awareness more than it is kind of direct quantitative results. And so I think there are three different ways that are probably the most popular ways to drive awareness and perception change. Brand marketing, public relations, and I think influencer marketing. Whether you want to lump influencer marketing in with PR or brand, that's a whole nother probably podcast. But I think those are the three that we would do. And so I've got some data here that I want to share around just media consumption as we kind of lead into thinking where you would actually focus. So what's interesting, right, is that mobile media consumption from 2011 to 2021 is up 460 percent. Pretty interesting. Desktop media consumption on the internet is up 25 percent. TV media consumption is down 24%, and radio is down 19%, and magazines are down 50%. So the, just the changing media landscape, regardless of if we're going to buy ads, we're going to do our media, influencers, has changed a lot. So if you are a marketer, you're a CEO, you're thinking about, oh, wow, I want to make this perception change in the world. How do you think about balancing the investment between brand, traditional media and public relations and influencer marketing. And then I want to kind of get deeper into influencer marketing after that. But I think all you're pointing out, Kip, is we totally agree the media landscape has changed, but most radio traffic has gone to podcasts. And yes, one great way of growing podcast awareness is via the HubSpot Podcast Network, but other ways are going on existing podcasts. So the things oh, that yeah. I previously would have pitched on radio, I would still say matter on the podcast side of things. I would also just say that as a historical trend overall, regardless of the time we were in, people always underestimate the degree to which they get news from media. So to give an example, how many of you know that Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez got married? Oh, For were, those listening at home, it's yeah, basically most everyone. everyone. A lot more people than knew the Pretender song. Um, oh, but, man. I'm so, cooler than you think, Katie. So Come here's on. what I'll say. Were, were all of you there? No, okay, you weren't. Okay, just making sure we're not. None if you of you were, were we'd there. Like to hear the Maybe yeah, if you were there, we want the, the wedding, stories and the photos. But my point is that, like, if you were to ask me how I heard about that, am I going to tell you I found out on Us Weekly's Instagram? Probably not. I'm going to say, like, oh, I just saw it on my phone on the way out of here. That doesn't show up in a traditional measure of traffic. But 100% the media influence is how social picked up on it and how and part of its virality. So I would argue the neatness of organizing in those categories doesn't actually mirror how most of us consume content. And it's not as neat as survey or research data would suggest. Well, I think that's totally fair. And I actually was kind of just making the argument that we have to lean much heavier into influencers, right? Like even if you look at the wedding example you just gave, like I think I learned about it on Twitter and I think the majority of tweets I saw were not media tweets, they were, they were influencer tweets about it. And then you have some media outlet who has the first photos or whatever because the, the, you know, the couple's managing that and everything. So I wanna dive deeper into influencer because I think it is just a huge part and more and more startups and brands that I talk to are just leaning heavy and influencer, and that's why I wanted to do the media stats. It's not because the traditional places are declining. It means that like the channels that are growing are more influencer heavy than they are traditional media heavy. And so it doesn't mean you ignore the traditional media channels. It just means their influence is growing and it's moved to a new part of the market where influencers just have way more power, way more control than ever before. And so if you are a brand out there, what's great is that every market has influence. So I don't care how niche you are. Like I was talking to, to the folks yesterday at Whitetail Properties, a HubSpot customer, and they do like very rural real estate. And it's like, Man, there's just a huge number of influencers across all online channels, even in this kind of very niche part of the market. How would you advise folks 
on thinking about and approaching their influencer strategy? Like, what is different about working with influencers than working with traditional media is, I think, what people really need to know. Yes. So I think on influencers, I agree with you on their importance. Here's what I'll say. It is the easiest slash laziest thing to do. It's, it's similar to our PR <laughs> example on the influencer side of things to pick people that everyone knows are already hits. So the mm -hmm. same people are going after the same five people. The price tag on them is incredibly high, but also the differentiation is relatively low. So most of the TikTok stars that have aligned with the likes of Dunkin' Donuts, it's gonna be really hard for you as a brand to distinguish yourself by aligning yourself with them. And so I think the biggest advice I have for people on influencer is you really wanna think, so if you were thinking about like a baseball scouting report, you want someone who's like double A, triple A on the, <laughs> on the rise. Come, You're on really, the come up. You want an on the come up person who is incredibly relevant to your audience. And I like your rural real estate example. You don't need to have the biggest TikTok star with the most views, you need to have the biggest TikTok star with views who is a specialist in all things rural or real estate. The other thing I think people mess up is they want something that is right down the middle for what exactly they do. Adjacent spaces are really where I think you get the most leverage in this space. So as an example, if I were thinking about building an awesome rural real estate company, I'd be like, okay, who's the next pioneer woman? Who's doing cooking oh, content example. in the middle of nowhere that is relevant and seems to be really gathering a great Facebook audience of awesome moms in the Midwest? That's the type of alliance that you want to build early. Now, is it easy to find the next pioneer woman or Tabitha, like, no, but I do think that should be everyone's goal. Just so you know, Katie is really, really great at what she just said. Finding people on the come up, finding, like, the signal from the noise on the internet is one of your superpowers. I just want to, you're really good at it. I want to, sh I want to shout you out on that. Um, I do want to go back to what you just said, though, because you okay. kind of contradicted yourself on what you just said. You said, oh, if you go with the core big influencers, it can be expensive. Well, that's contradictory to the earned media side of PR, which is why I kind of think influencer marketing is tangential, adjacent to PR, but not part of PR, is because the lines blur of what is earned versus paid in the influencer world. Like, do you agree with that? Like, disagree? Like, what's, what do you think? Because there's so, a lot of pay to play in the influencer marketing world right now. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I think it, that's part of the other benefit of picking the up-and-comers. It's, it's less likely to be a cash transaction and much more likely to be aligned on awareness-driving behavior or co-marketing. And that's why I think it belongs in PR, is if you pick the great uh, up-and-comers, nice, you get the most leverage. It's a nice twist you did there. I like you shoehorned yeah, that you get in the most bit. leverage and the most upside, which I think is a lot of what we're talking about. Okay, so you want to find the up-and-coming influencers. That's, that's one thing. How do you, how do you actually get a hold of them. Like, what do you do? What, uh, what do you ask? If you're, you know, I was, uh, I was talking to someone in the audience earlier who's running a construction technology business. Like, how do you get there and go from like, oh, I know who these up-and-comers are to actually working with them? What's the approach? What's that look like? You slide I'm, into the DMs. You slide What's into people's DMs. Okay, I, I, so I'm let me tell sure. you. sure. I just want the, I want the Okay, want a few of my favorite know. examples of sliding into people's DMs. He's actually here. So Sam Moronko is an amazing photographer on Kip's team, on the marketing team. I found him because my alma mater, Bates College, posted a photo and I was like, that is a special photo. I DM'd Bates and I was like, this is a special photo and it's not taken by the usual photographer who I know. <laughs> Talk to me about do. who this person is who took it. And they were like, that's actually a student. And I was like, cool, tell me more about him. Does he have a job after graduation? And the answer was no. So we literally DM'd, that's how he ended up at HubSpot. And now in addition to his job doing awesome marketing photography at HubSpot, he's a legit NBA photographer. Like I tell people I know him kind of thing. 
One of the biggest things I think people need to get over is the worry about being cool. You know Amy Poehler is one of my favorite people, and one of True. my favorite quotes from her is like, you can't be that person at the top of the diving board just waiting to dive in. you got to jump. And so I think people often overthink, how do I do outreach? How do I sound cool? Like, I didn't sound cool in reaching out to Sam. I'm sure I didn't. <laughs> but what I did do was get aggressive and be like, I'm not losing this incredible talent to another company, and so I'm willing to be awkward to do that. Another good example was during the height of the pandemic when Tiger King was all the rage. I was like, oh, the we, Tiger King era. Feels I like, was like years we ago now. Need, our employees need something to do. They need to be entertained. And I was like, I am going to get the producer of Tiger King to do a hub talk if it kills me. I had nothing to do. I wasn't built. Everyone else is baking sourdough. I'm not good at baking sourdough. I was like, I am going to slide into this guy's DMs until he responds to me. And he did. And it turns out what it took was really good research. First of all, I will find your social security number. I won't really, don't worry. But like, I was like, cool, he lives in British Columbia. We can build some shared interests. Like, I didn't just write to him, hey, here's how you can promote HubSpot. I was, we, we both care about the British Columbia wilderness. And by the way, here's my favorite deep cut fun fact from your podcast on Tiger King. And by the way, I listened to the other podcast you did about it. And here's why you should come do a talk. And he was like, you seem a little weird, but I'm definitely in. <laughs> And so that's what I would just say is like, it takes being aggressive. Like Brian's favorite cheer is like B-E-A-G-G, like the old school, be aggressive cheer. I think there's something to that when it comes to influencer marketing. You can't be the person trying to get it perfect and overthinking it. You've got to be aggressive. Uh, I love that. That's amazing, amazing, amazing advice. And what I think everybody listening uh, at Inbound and online should, should know is that it's about the prep, and you know, one of my first principles that I live by is that we as people are way more alike than we are different, and you can find commonalities with anyone in this world. And what you really just outlined is if you want to work with influencers, what's great is instead of a traditional media company where you have a reporter who has to answer to an editor, who has to answer to a publisher, you have an, an influencer is kind of a sol solo op operator. They, they, they make the decisions themselves. And so if you can find that point of commonality with them in a DM, you can build a relationship very, very quickly because they don't need to go and check with anybody. And the ability to be aggressive and, and work and get that aware and drive that awareness can happen much faster than maybe traditional media. Do you think that's true? I don't know if I agree with that. So when we started building, so when I first started on comms at HubSpot, I did not have relationships with the tech journalists we needed to have. Uh, our first piece of TechCrunch coverage came from a DM where I found a tweet about the Mighty Ducks and the Flying V. That was the report that <laughs> I, I built the with Mighty the reporter, Ducks. like a super deep cut. But that was how I engaged with them. I didn't engage with them by saying, like, here's how you can learn about HubSpot, this inbound marketing software. I found a commonality that he was interested in. And I would say we were able to get coverage within six weeks. So I think people overestimate sometimes how long it will take to build that rapport if you lead with creating value. The other thing I'll say, going back to your well, point six on... six weeks, but you could be live with an influencer in like a day or two. Or you could not. You could be stuck in contracts for eight uh, weeks, depending course. on that. But so if you're picking an up-and-comer and you're not doing a big cash exchange, like it can be a lot faster. But six weeks, to your point if you do it right, is really fast in the kind of earned media world. I think both are possible. There's no question influencer marketing has fewer strings attached. I guess I would just say, I think journalists have more autonomy to pursue their own interests than people realize. Oh, I think that's, I think that's fair. I, th I think that's true. I think there's just a little bit more uh, hierarchy there. Okay, I, I want to keep going. We've talked a lot about influencer marketing. It's been, it's been really interesting. Now, if you're a company out there and you've got finite amount of time, money, and you're like, hey, 
how much time do I spend on the influencer, the PR, the brand side of things? Like, how do I allocate my time and money? Like, how do you think about that? What advice, what framework of thinking would you give everybody out there to, to think about making those investments? So I think everyone is looking for a recipe. And the reality is if you replicate everyone else's recipe, you're going to fall love this. short. Yeah, and totally. so the better question is, how are you going to win? And what I want to hear is less about the ratio and the breakdown of those and how are you going to win? And to me, winning includes a balance of all those strategies. So as an example, like I'm a huge believer in PR and comms. I don't think it's the only thing the company should do. Obviously, it's a reason I work at HubSpot. I believe that you should be doing blog content, social, that sort of thing. But I do think sometimes people confuse quantity over quality. So as an example, oh, if you give me yes. eight pages go. of a list of all the things you're going to do and all the strategies, none of them tell me how you're going to win. Those are just things you're going to do, not activity. how you're going to win. It's just a bunch so of crap. So I would yeah. prefer, like my, from my perspective, for most companies, your marketing strategy should fit on a single page and they should be all about how you're going to win. So don't give me things around like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to publish 18 posts. It's like, how are you going to win in thought leadership, in PR, in brand? What does that look like? And I would actually encourage people to cross more things off their list and do fewer things better. I love the fewer things better. but I, I, So I want to take a different perspective from you on this. And that when it comes to marketing, one of my beliefs is you lean in to the things that you were just innately better at. Like sometimes you just have, as a team of humans, between your experience and the way you think, you're just better at some aspects of marketing than others. And I think it's really rare for a team to be kind of equally good at brand marketing, public relations, influencer marketing. You're likely really great at one of those things and probably solid at, those, at the other two. And I would really advocate to lean in and disproportionately invest on doing the fewer things better, but in the area where you have this like unfair advantage that you just as a group of people have just better skill, knowledge, and ability to execute in one of those things than anything else. I actually don't think it's about the disciplines themselves. I would actually argue it's what you think you can execute at the highest level, the closest to world class you can get, and you should put a disproportionate amount of your time and your money in that thing. And if you're great at all of those things, then good for you. I don't, I've never met anybody who's great at all, a team that's great at all those things. Like, what do you think about that? I think I mostly agree with you. The one thing that tends to get lost in there, though, is core messaging. So core messaging makes you better at all those things. How many people have been stuck at a cocktail party with someone who drones on and on about what their company does, and you have no idea what they're talking about? You all have. Everybody, all everybody's there. raising their hands, yeah. And then how many people have a friend who works at Uber for fill in the blank? All of us <laughs> do. Every single person describes their company that way. And so what I would just say is like, everything gets better. Your earned media strategy, your social media gets better if people have an understanding of how to message the company such that you stick out from the pack. And I think oftentimes that gets missed. So as an example, let's say you're running all things social and blog, I'm running all things just brand related. If we are taking two different paths and describing how we're gonna win or who our target customer is, we are missing the point. And so I think message architecture and discipline sounds so boring, but it's a step that so many startups skip. And I think it's a huge mistake. I know. I hate it, but she's right. That, I mean, that is boring, hard work to do. One follow-up question I have, because that is boring, hard work, I've also given product marketing some hell on this podcast in the past. Product marketing and product position, category positioning, and your overall company messaging. Like, it's easy to conflate all those, and there's enough cooks in the kitchen that you can sometimes be doing it and get nowhere because there's like a bunch of people doing that. From your point of view, who leads the way on that? And like, what's the right process to actually make that happen? So I don't think it matters who leads on this. And I think from our perspective- The best person should lead is the The best answer. person should lead is right. <laughs> 
Uh, and I also think what matters is oftentimes, and John Dick and I have talked about this, there are times when people are so in the details that you miss the forest through the trees. So if you mm -hmm. are in a messaging document and there are 85 people commenting in this messaging doc oh. about whether it's a just, or Just the, delete that freaking document right away. If you've that got many people commenting, it's a waste. Because already you're too far afield from what's actually going to help you win. You should be with five people in the room really arguing over whether it's an inbound marketing software company or something similar. That description that fits between commas in print, that's what you should be fighting about. And then everything else dovetails from there. And I think sometimes people get too mired in the details and don't focus on the high level. What are we going to put on the banner? What actually helps us win? If you agree on that up front, it makes everything else easier. Well, I want to double down on what Katie just said there, because I think it is exceptionally important that you, you need a small group of people. And the reason for that is because I think one of the things that Brian Haugen at HubSpot talked a lot about, especially in early HubSpot, was this notion of uninspired compromise. When you have a lot of people weighing in on something, they all, everybody has their thing, the thing they care about there, what we call pet rock, that they're like, oh, I'm going to bring this to the party and I'm going to get this put through. And it's just impossible when you have 10 pet rocks, 10 things that people care about to come up with anything that makes sense or is original. That's how you get all these bad, boring, business jargony, descriptions, positions, all of those things. And so one of your tips to avoid uninspired compromise is to keep the group small. What else? What else? Okay, you have touched upon like one of my <laughs> biggest pet rocks. Speaking know, of, of pet course, rocks, of uninspired compromise. So I'll go back in history at HubSpot again to talk about the culture code. Please. So the culture code, oh, you this know, is a good. This is a good topic. Casual document, people often say like, wow, Darmesh, what a genius. And by the way, 100% true. Tens of millions of people have the culture code. So people will often say, I'm building my own culture code at fill in the blank company. Do you mind taking a look? I was talking to some awesome founders last night about their culture codes. Most culture codes are extremely boring. They are completely uninspired. They say, I would like to work with nice people and do big things and work for a mission-driven company. Have you ever met someone who's like, I'd like to work with crappy people that I don't like <laughs> doing uninspiring work? No. Said no one ever. Yes. Correct. And so the the test that I use for most culture documents is if you were to put your hand over the top of the document and at the company name and description, could it be a yoga studio in your neighborhood? <laughs> and the answer almost always is yes. 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 We want to grow. We want to stretch ourselves. It could be a yoga studio, right? I know some of you are laughing because you are going to your job's website as we speak to fix the copy. It's totally <laughs> fine. No judgment. I'm not looking it's, at it's you a safe personally. Space. But one of the things that people don't give Darmesh credit for was when we launched the culture code, not every HubSpot employee agreed with everything that was in it. Super controversial. It was super controversial, even internally. And he had the courage to say, okay, I'm going to make sure I incorporate employee feedback. I don't think you should just launch it into the wilderness without that. But to have courage of conviction to say, no, these are some things we actually care about. And the other thing about a culture deck is, and the same is true of any brand materials, they are as important for who they keep out as who they draw in. This is the point. You can't be for something if you're without being against something else, yes. right? Uh, the reason things are boring, the reason things sound like a yoga studio is because you're trying to be everything to everybody. And uh, one of the things that I think is really great in this example is you have to be clear on things that you are not for. What you are against is really important. The other thing that was really important in, in this culture code example is Darmesh said a lot of things were aspirational. You had to be really transparent and admit like, hey, these are the things we want to be, and we're, we're going to have the hubris to say we are not there yet. But wow, we're never going to get there if we don't make a public aspiration that we want to get there, 
right? And most companies are also afraid to make public declarations of aspiration, whether it be to their employees, whether it be their customers, their partners, doesn't matter. They're, they get stuck in the here and now and the things that they think everybody wants to hear about today to appease everyone, and they never actually aspire to something greater. The number one way I will be able to tell with 100% accuracy if your marketing strategy on that one page is going to fail is if your target audience says everyone. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, just stop now. Don't even bother doing everything else because, yes, there may be a TAM that is everyone on earth that is not a winning marketing strategy and nothing you ever do will help get there. So Darmesh was genius for carving out the fact that our principle of autonomy means there are people who say, I don't really want to work at HubSpot. And that's okay. We say to them, like, thank you. That is amazing. Thank you for reading our document. You may not be the great culture ad that we're looking for here. And I think that's really important. Great brands take a stand. Well, I, I totally agree with taking a stand. I want to wind back to PR a little bit closer because you just brought up an aspect of PR we haven't talked about. What happens when people say bad shit about you? Right? Like that is actually something that a lot of companies, a lot of leaders really worry about. Like what happens when you get that bad negative article out there? We've had our share. We have. Uh, so like how do you handle that? What do you do? So I have a controversial take on this, which is I think people saying not perfect things about you is really good for your business and for your organization. Because the reality is your employees are giving you. So as, as an example, on any given day, I hope most HubSpotters are super happy. There are people who are frustrated and complaining and saying not perfect things about our day-to-day -day experience. That's healthy, that's normal, that's human. The same is true of your customers, the same is true of social media. And so I actually think the resilience that you get from listening to tough feedback about your brand and organization and listening to third-party perception of how it's falling short is a really good thing. I think hubris kills most companies. And so all of our bad press, all of our bad social media, all of our bad glass store reviews, do I love them? No. Do I need to take a break from them I sometimes? I was going to say, I think they've, <laughs> I mean, they've made you mad a few times. For sure. Yeah. But do I think at the end of the day that it's so important? I think it is so easy to end up with headphones on in your own vacuum thinking about your brand and business. That's not how reality works. And so it's incredibly important. Like I think we are a better company because so many of our customers and so many of our employees feel comfortable coming up to you and I saying, here's where I think you fell short. I think that makes us better leaders and I also think it makes the business better. Yeah, and I think what, you, what I would expand on what you're saying is like, I think you want to have that conversation with the leadership of your company before the bad articles happen, right? Like you want to set that expectation, get aligned on what, what we call intellectual honesty. Just, I'm going to be open to feedback and information and I'm going to use that to get better. Right? 100%. And set that bar of like, this is how we work together, right? And I think the other thing that's really important, particularly with Brad Press in particular, yeah. is what don't you like versus what isn't true? Those are two different things. So as an example, <laughs> if they describe good. me as opinionated and a little over the top, I may not like that, but that is true. There's not like a factual argument. And so what I describe to people is like the factual stuff you should contest with reporters to make sure they have a factually accurate piece. It is totally fine for you to call a reporter and request a correction for something. It is not okay if they didn't describe your company as Uber for yeah, X perfectly, perfectly in the way that you wanted them to. That is not their job to do. Love that. Uh, all right, we're, we're about to wind down. I want to close out. Uh, I'm going to give us a summary here in just a second. But before we do that, I want you to make your final case to everybody is like why they should lean into PR as part of their communications and business strategy. You've made some great points today. I want to give you a minute to, to kind of close it out. 
Sure. So I think um, from my perspective, we talked about the importance of winning in a market. And I don't think you can win without proper message discipline so people actually understand who you are and what you do. It is way easier to accelerate people understanding who you are and what you do when you combine owned and earned media. So having PR as an accelerant to your organization's growth is mission critical if you care about things like international expansion, if you care about your brand reputation, which everyone should, but also if you care about building long-term relationships that set up your company and organization for skill. It's also just great discipline for your executives to get good at media relations early. It makes them better speakers at places like Inbound. It makes them better leaders in your executive team, AMAs, and media. And so I think there's a um, additional network effects that come from prioritizing PR that really help. The other reason to do it is, unfortunately, if something unexpected happens, you want to have that rigor, that muscle set, so you can protect your brand and reputation when it really matters. So there's an offensive component that's really important and valuable. There's also a defensive component that I think you can make the argument makes it incredibly important and vital for brands. I love that closing argument. Here's the argument I'd make to everybody kind of summarizing what, what we just said, is that baseline message alignment and clarity of message from a PR and brand perspective is going to be critical for any business uh, and, it's, and include your employees as part of that. The media landscape has changed dramatically. Influencer marketing is now a huge part of how you get your market, you get your message to market and build awareness. So while it doesn't mean you leave traditional media channels behind, how you engage with those folks have changed differently. Have a bias for action. Be aggressive. Find shared commonality, whether it be with an influencer or a reporter, that connects with them on a deeper and more special level. You gave a great example with the Tiger King producer. That was awesome. I think we got a ton of great tips for how to focus and how to get better. I would just argue to everybody out there, be clear on how you're going to build awareness. And I think you have multiple tools. And lean into the one that you are best at. For some of you out there, you're going to be remarkable at PR. You're going to have amazing spokespeople, and you should do it. If you don't have that, lean less into it and lean much more into brand marketing, influencer marketing, other channels. If you like today's episode, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, all the places. We'd love a review on Apple Podcasts. Please, please, please. This has been a very special live from Inbound episode of Marketing Against the Grain. Thanks for being here, everybody. Appreciate it.